Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. While things are still unsettled in the world, we are going to be turning to some of our favorite episodes from the past four years, which I hope you'll enjoy. Geoffrey Chaucer was born a wine merchant's son in 1340s London. He survived the plague, the Hundred Years' War, the Great Rising, and an adolescence spent wearing extremely tight pants in rich women's houses to become one of the most celebrated poets in English. How did he do it? Marion Turner is an associate professor of English at the University of Oxford, and she's the author of the first biography of the man in a generation. In Chaucer, A European Life, she makes the case that the man we think of as a great English poet was in fact a great European one, too. He was inspired by the literature of Italy, Spain, France, and elsewhere. But more importantly, he drew on his interactions with the people he encountered during his travels and from the places he visited. For example, how did the frescoes of Florence give rise to the different places and perspectives in Chaucer's poem, The House of Fame? Did Chaucer's visits to his daughter's not-too-chaste nunnery influence the body nun's priest's tale? Marion Turner joins us from Oxford to take us back to the Middle Ages to find out. Thanks so much for talking to me. It is my pleasure. I'm delighted. So this is kind of embarrassing to admit right before an interview with a medievalist, but I've never read the Canterbury Tales in full from cover to cover. So <laughs> somewhat selfishly, do you have any tricks for diving into it finally? Bilingual editions, hot tips, etc.? Okay, so the first thing I would say is that you had quite an authentic medieval reading experience in not reading <laughs> the whole thing. Because in fact, when we get it as the Canterbury Tales, that's very much a modern edition way of thinking about Chaucer. So probably initially he was circulating what we call the fragment, so a few tales at a time, and people were reading them in different orders. You know, he was circulating tales to his friends and then he was rewriting them and changing them and some manuscripts have some and some have others. And in the 15th century, 
history after Chaucer's death, you often get just individual tales copied or people just having their favourites. And people tend to have very different favourites. So people in the 15th century tended to like all the tales that are very serious, the saint's life, the allegory about prudence. Then in the 20th century, people like the tales about having sex in a tree and things like that. <laughs> so actually not reading them all is OK. Um Unfortunately, there's not really a good example of an edition where you have the medieval and the modern together. So what I would say is have a go with the Middle English. And usually what people find is if they're reading it in a well-glossed edition, they can slip into the Middle English quite easily by looking down at the glossed words and then just kind of getting their eye in and realising that words that look funny to them actually, you know, it's just funny medieval spelling, but they do know the words once they start sounding them out. And one tip that I'd give is try reading it aloud, you know, and don't be embarrassed about how it sounds, just read it aloud to yourself. And again, that's very authentically medieval because in Chaucer's time, people did read out loud even when they were by themselves and they kind of felt the words and tasted them in their mouths. And it's quite a different kind of reading experience, in fact. Oh, man, I feel so validated because my one <laughs> attempt at doing it cover to cover was actually an audiobook form, um, ah. but it was tough. <laughs> I kept having to rewind, but great. Oh, that's so good to hear. Um, so I want to talk about your book's situation in the canon of Chaucer biography because yours is the first in a generation. And meanwhile, Shakespeare, who, unlike Chaucer, did not invent iambic pentameter, <laughs> seems to get a biography of some kind every few years or so. Yeah. Which seems somewhat infuriating since Chaucer is just as foundational to English lit. Do you think Chaucer gets the attention he deserves? I absolutely don't think he gets enough attention. And I think it's it's also interesting in terms of biography in that we know so much more about Chaucer than we do about Shakespeare. You know, we have very few life records for Shakespeare, but because Chaucer spent his life as a civil servant, as a bureaucrat, working for the king, working for the government, we have hundreds and hundreds of life records. We know an enormous amount about Chaucer. So, you know, many people have said to me, you know, people who maybe didn't know that much about the medieval era have said to me, well, is there enough for a biography? And then they're really surprised and interested when I say, well, actually, you know, the challenge is working out what stories I can tell and which ones I have to leave out and what I can go into because there is just so much. And even though my book is, you know, it's quite a doorstopper of a book, but it could have been much, much longer because there is just so much to say. So I think that the fact that Chaucer is writing in earlier English has certainly meant that he doesn't get the attention he deserves. And he's been packaged in particular ways, which make people think of his work as as work that's that's to be studied rather than to be read and enjoyed. And for me, I, I'm really passionate about trying to emphasise to people that Chaucer isn't just for school or university or for studying. It's for reading for fun. And actually, you know, lots and lots of poets are inspired by Chaucer. And what he's doing in his literature is so varied that whatever you're interested in, you can find it in Chaucer. Because again, compared, say, to Shakespeare... Chaucer has so much more range. You know, Chaucer writes romances. He writes fablio, which are kind of bawdy, rude stories. He writes saints' lives. He translates philosophy. He translates love poetry. He writes a prose scientific treatise. He writes short lyric poems. He just does so many different things that there really is a Chaucer for everyone. 
Well, I mean, one of the challenges with Chaucer, which is true of Shakespeare, too, is that we don't have a lot of personal correspondence or diaries or anything. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of sources. And um, I think yours are kind of interesting because two of your chapters open with accounts of thieves and stolen merchandise, which... uh, paints mm. a curious picture of medieval England and and mm. makes me wonder how you use the sources that you do have since there are so many. Yeah, so as you say, for a biographer, it's a real challenge when you're writing a biography of someone for whom we do not have letters or diaries and I can't interview his grandchildren or people that knew his grandchildren or, or anything like that. So quite early on in the process of writing the biography... I realized that I didn't want this to be a biography of the emotional life because really you can only do that with someone such as Chaucer if you're prepared to be very, very speculative. And that was not what I wanted to do. So I think we can't reconstruct in detail, you know, which of his friends he liked best or what he was thinking about in terms of his wife at certain moments in in his life. That's just not what we can what we can do. And instead, I decided that I wanted to make it a kind of biography of the imagination. So to think about how we can understand Chaucer's mindset and the mindset of his audience. And I decided to structure the biography through places and spaces. So to think about what art did Chaucer see? Where did he go? What places did he travel to? What streets did he walk down? And what were the institutions that he experienced like? You know, what was it like to live in a great household where you do everything in public? What was a medieval inn like? And then also to think conceptually about images that he uses of the cage, of the periphery, of the threshold, and to try to think about those kinds of spaces and to think about Chaucer's imagination. So for me, that was how I decided to get at Chaucer rather than trying to get at the emotional life as you might if you had letters and so on. You were also asking about the sources, about the range of sources. I think that we have a big volume of Chaucer life records. And so one of the things that I thought was important to do was to try to put those life records back into their contexts, for example, so that we have one small record which says that Chaucer went to Navarre in northern Spain. So I took that record and I looked at all the other records that were issued by the Chancellery of Navarre at around that time. And I found out all kinds of really interesting things about what happened when Chaucer was there, that when Chaucer visited Navarre, it was a multicultural community. There was a Jewish community there and a Muslim community. And at the time that Chaucer was there, Navarre was being invaded and the king was trying to protect the Jews by bringing them inside the walls of the city because he knew the invading forces would target them. So by taking Chaucer's life record and then putting it back in context, I found out all kinds of just fascinating things about that trip. And so you expand your sense of what's relevant because, again, we have a very brief record about Chaucer's daughter going into a nunnery. So I went away and I found out a lot of things about that nunnery and what it was really like, which was scandalous. So this nunnery that Chaucer's daughter lived in, in fact, was a place of all kinds of revelry and dancing. And I found these records where the dean was writing to the prioress saying, you've got to stop having so many parties, you know, only party at certain times of year. And can you please sleep in your dormitory and not go to all those places which cause scandal? And we won't say any more about that right Right now, but you know what I mean, and don't have so many overnight guests, and and these these documents were completely fascinating. You know, once you kind of start expanding your sense of what what other things might be relevant. Well, I mean, it sounds a lot like Chaucer, to be honest, a wild nunnery. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk more too about how imagination and 
place play into Chaucer's writing itself. But before we get there, can you give us a broad outline of Chaucer's biography? What are the key places that shaped his life? Where did he go after being born in plague-ridden London circa 1340? So Chaucer traveled a lot in Europe. He went to Spain, he went many, many times to France, and he also, most importantly, for the development of his literary life, he went to Italy twice. I mean, it's really interesting as to why he went to Italy, because he was chosen to go there really because of this mixed social background that he had. So he was the son of a merchant in London, brought up in the area of London, the Vintry Ward that had more immigrants in it than any other ward of London. So he was born in an area where he met lots of traders from different countries, and that was probably where he learned Italian. So then when he started to climb socially a bit later on in life... He was in court and he was chosen to go on these missions to Italy, probably because he happened to know Italian, which most people did not at this time. So when he was in Italy, he went on two different trips. So the first trip, he went to Genoa and Florence. And the second trip, he went to Lombardy in northern Italy. And so when he went to Italy, he experienced kind of oligarchic city-states, but he also experienced the tyrannical rule of the Visconti, who ruled northern Italy, Milan, Pavia, that area, um, in a very oppressive way. So he saw different political systems. And he also encountered all kinds of art. So when he was in Florence, for example, he almost certainly saw the early art of Giotto, so early experiments in perspective. When he was in Florence, he was visiting and negotiating with the Bardi banking family. And they had employed Giotto to fresco their chapel in Santa Croce. So we can imagine Chaucer seeing this art, which was really experimenting and pushing the boundaries of how we think about ourselves in time and space and thinking about how it really matters where you are standing. What you see depends on where you're standing, what your perspective is, which is an idea which medieval scientists are also thinking about at this time. And it's an idea that's really important to Chaucer. Now, when Chaucer's in northern Italy, that's almost certainly when he picks up lots and lots of manuscripts. And Italian poetry is really fundamental to the development of Chaucer's poetry and therefore English poetry as a whole. So Chaucer read Dante in great detail. Chaucer was the first person to translate a Petrarchan sonnet into English. And Chaucer was probably the only person at this time from England who was reading Boccaccio's texts. And reading Boccaccio's texts really changed Chaucer's poetic trajectory. So earlier on in his career, Chaucer is more influenced by French and Latin. And then he encounters Boccaccio. And really things change a lot, both in terms of form and in terms of content for Chaucer. So, I mean, how do we see the influence of this stuff in both the shape and subject matter of his writing? I can think of some examples with, you know, the Decameron influencing the subject of the Canterbury Tales or the shape of it. Absolutely. That is such an interesting and important text to look at in relation to the Canterbury Tales. So Chaucer's not the only person in the 14th century to be writing a tale collection, but Chaucer's tale collection is really crucially different. And one of the most important ways in which Chaucer's tale collection is different is the kind of people who are allowed to tell tales. You know, whose voices should we listen to? Whose voices matter? So Boccaccio's Decameron, which is a brilliant text, but all the tale tellers are very similar. 
They're all young, they're all beautiful, many of them are related to each other, and most importantly, they're all of gentle background, i.e. they're all fairly aristocratic, they're all fairly important. When Chaucer puts his group of pilgrims together, they are this motley crew. They're not all of the same social class. He just has one knight who's fairly important. And then he has all kinds of different people. He has a sailor. He has a cook. He has guildsmen. He has a merchant. He has a lawyer. He has all kinds of different people. And the point of the Canterbury Tales is to say, well, we have to listen to lots of different perspectives and those perspectives need to come from different class backgrounds, from different genders, from different kinds of jobs. We have to listen to all these voices and we're not going to like them all, but it's important that these voices are heard and that then the reader or listener decides for themselves what they care about, what they believe, with whom they agree. If we just hear one voice, then we're not getting a good picture of the world. And none of the tale tellers in the Canterbury Tales are telling their stories in hierarchical order, right? It's all scrambled. It's not like, well, first we have the knight, and then we have the monk, and then we have, you know, a descending social class. It's all mixed up. Exactly. So that's what the host figure, Harry Bailey, wants to happen. He wants it to be the knight and then the monk. So the knight tells the first story and then Harry Bailey, the host figure, says, OK, now we'll have the monk. And the miller says, absolutely not. The miller is drunk, he's vulgar, he's low class. And he says, I'm going to tell the next tale. And he does. He goes ahead, he tells the next tale, and it's an absolutely brilliant tale. And not only is it brilliant, it's also a parody of the knight's tale, mocking what the knight was doing, and essentially taking the same plot and putting it into a different genre, looking at it from a different perspective and doing different things with it. And then, really importantly, this random order continues. So the tale collection takes on its own kind of power and force as different tellers say, I want to tell the next one. Actually, I want to get back at you. It's my turn. And so we really have a very dynamic, non-hierarchical situation in the Canterbury Tales. Well, I mean, and that's not the prevailing dynamic in the Middle Ages, it seems like, from what we understand. So, I mean, I'm going to crib one of the questions that you yourself ask in your prologue, because I think it's such a good one, which is, how did Chaucer gain his international sophistication and then also his interest in writing for a broader audience for the common people? So I think he gains his international sophistication both at home and abroad. So the kind of background that Chaucer came from, you know, he came from an urban background. He came from a situation where people were very cosmopolitan. So in London at this time, you can buy fabrics and spices that have come from all over the world that have been traded across the Silk Road. People were interested in thinking about a broader world. This was not a kind of little England. This was not fortress Britain. You know, people were in fact really interested in thinking internationally. So Chaucer moved in sophisticated circles at home. And then when he went abroad, he obviously took many opportunities to travel and to meet different people. But I think we also do have to to think about him as someone who made the most of these opportunities because of course lots of people could have these opportunities but not do what Chaucer did. And I think the other really interesting thing about Chaucer as a person, about how did he how did he do such extraordinary things, is that he was someone who was never, as far as we know, he was never being paid to write his poems. 
We don't have any records of him receiving any kind of reward for his poetry. He always had a day job and then spent the evenings doing things like writing the Canterbury Tales. So, you know, it's quite infuriating to think about him, you know, spending his day doing his accounting job. And then, you know, he didn't just go home and have a cup of tea and watch Netflix or, you know, whatever. He went home and then by candlelight in his rooms... He was writing these extraordinary texts. So he was he must have been absolutely driven to write by something inside himself. You know, being a writer is who he was and he had to do it, whatever other pressures were on him. And I think that is a really important aspect of Chaucer, just to think about him as someone who who wanted to write quite regardless of whether people were going to reward him for it. I mean, and he could have written in any of these other languages, but instead he wrote mm. in vulgar English, right? And I think you yeah. say that his poetry was marketed at court, but also sold by brothel owners. Yeah. What yeah. does that drive come from? Because it is definitely not typical to write everything that Chaucer did, but is doubly atypical to want, you know, brothel visitors to read that stuff. Yeah, and I'm not sure he was aiming at the brothel market, but um, <laughs> I don't know. But, I think, um, but yes, so as you say, Chaucer could easily have written in French or Latin, and his friend and contemporary Gower, for instance, wrote three long poems: one in English, one in French, one in Latin. That was a more kind of normal thing to do. In the late 14th century, Chaucer's not the only person who's driving this increase in vernacular literature. So he's part of a of a movement to write more poems in English. So at this time, we've got the poet who wrote Gawain and the Green Knight, for instance. We've also got Langland writing Piers Plowman. And also in the later 14th century, more English starts to be used in the law courts, for instance, in petitions. So in different areas of writing, we can see more English being used. But one of the most interesting things about the upsurge in the vernacular at this time is that this is an international trend. So in particular, a generation earlier, Dante in Italy had been pioneering the use of the vernacular. So Dante had written not only in Tuscan, but had written a lot about the importance of writing in the vernacular and the importance of saying that these vulgar tongues that were more accessible to more people were as worthy as Latin. And so when Chaucer was choosing to write in English, he was partly thinking about, well, can English do what Tuscan has done? Can I do the same kinds of things as the Italians? Can I push my language in the way that they've been pushing theirs? So partly he's doing something quite international. And I think also that writing in English, I think there's a couple of different ways in which it was a an interesting experiment for Chaucer. So one thing is that it allows him to access more people, absolutely. So a greater range of social classes, more women, for example. I think it also allows him to be more experimental because he is the first person to be trying lots of these genres out in English. So he thinks about, well, can you write this genre in English? And then he coins various new words. He borrows words from other languages and Englishes them. He invents these new poetic forms, as we've been talking about. And so I think that one aspect of writing in English is also that it allows him to to indulge his appetite for 
novelty and experiment while also reaching this greater range of people. And so we see his audience at the time being partly people on the fringes of the court, but also merchants, scribes, um, people who own inns and brothels, those kinds of people. You know, there's a bit in the Canterbury Tales, and he repeats the sentiment elsewhere, diverse men, diversely, they said, you know, diverse people say different things. And I think Chaucer is really interested in trying to get different kinds of people to read and listen to text and get different reactions. You know, just as we have to hear lots of voices, we also want our voices to be heard by lots of people so that you get that sense of of difference, of variety, of what will what will different kinds of people make of this text? So many of the questions that Chaucer is dealing with and that the medieval world was grappling with at this time just seems really modern to me. I mean, just Mm. like a couple weeks ago, I talked to a psychologist about how increasingly spatial reasoning and thinking about location is being seen as foundational to thought. And so the more I read medieval texts or look at medieval texts, the more shockingly relevant it seems. Absolutely. And I think that one of the great pleasures of reading older literature is negotiating the tension between the things that are familiar and the things that are alien and involve a leap of imagination and that both those things are really important. So finding the relevance is often a great way in and then then you can encourage people also to think about where they have to make those imaginative leaps because that's also really important, you know, not only to see the familiar but also to think about trying to get inside a world that often is different and trying to trying to think about it from other perspectives, as Chaucer was so interested in. So to try to give you an example of that, one of the anecdotes in my book involves Chaucer being bought these scandalous clothes. So this first life record of Chaucer in which um, his employer buys him these very tight leggings and a tunic. At the time, contemporary chroniclers thought that these clothes were so scandalous, so outrageous, so indecent that God had punished people for wearing them by sending the plague back to England. And I mean, this anecdote is obviously very funny. You know, the idea of Chaucer, not as patriarch father of English literature, but as a teenage boy wearing outrageous clothes and very tight trousers. But more seriously, I think it also demonstrates exactly this tension between the familiar and the alien. Because on the one hand, you think, okay, so back in the 1350s, teenagers were wearing clothes that older people thought were outrageous. You know, that's exactly the same as today. But on the other hand, when we really get inside that anecdote, we think, okay, so this is a teenage boy who can't choose what his clothes are, who is working in an economy in which he is not paid in money. He was a page in this great household. He was not paid in money. He was paid in clothes and food. He didn't have a private identity in that household. He didn't have his own room. He couldn't choose where to have a meal or when to have a meal. He couldn't choose what to wear. He had no private space whatsoever. And his identity didn't matter in that household. He was there as an ornament, as something which was part of the identity of the lady who headed the household. And that's very alien to us to try to think about living in that very public way, living as part of someone else's identity. That's one thing which is so fascinating about reading the past, because it both reminds us of what doesn't change and makes us think about what does change, about different modes of life, different modes of thinking. 
If, like me, you have never read the Canterbury Tales from cover to cover, Marianne Turner recommends picking up the New Norton edition or the Riverside Chaucer, which contains his collected works. And of course, you should absolutely pick up Marianne Turner's biography, Chaucer, A European Life. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.